0: Well, please turn with me in your Bibles to the fourth chapter of Ephesians. The fourth chapter, you can find that in the uh, navy blue Bibles in your pew. On page 1161, 1161. We begin this morning with the fourth chapter. Having completed three of six, we are officially halfway through. And here we find these words from the Apostle Paul. I therefore... One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. This is the word of the Lord. And again we say, thanks be to God. And so we continue our series in the book of Ephesians this morning, starting in chapter 4. And so, I, um, as, as I've already said, that um, it begins in verse 1 with Paul speaking of himself. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. And so you see that word therefore there. And, and in, in seminary, we were always trained that wherever you at, see a therefore, you ask what it's there for. Okay? Therefore is a transition phrase that points to something earlier and it, it, so that it can be grounded to now say whatever we're going to say. right? And Ephesians... The, the whole letter follows a very typical Pauline pattern, and that is doctrine, or, or I mean, if you like, theology, followed by application, or what's sometimes called practical living sort of thing. It is very common in Paul's work to see, about, to, to see him spend about half his time on the doctrine and then half his time on the application. This is true of Romans in very much a similar format, by the way. In Romans, you get theology, 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 doctrine, and so on, exploring all these grand glories of, of justification and salvation and the golden chain of redemption. And then you get to chapter 12, therefore, based on those 11 chapters, present your bodies as a living sacrifice and so on. And so, you, and that's why, by the way, um, you see this pattern a lot in, in preaching, Preaching, you have the the sort of doctrinal theological content and you have the application and different preachers trained in different ways will do that in different ways, but generally those are the two elements of a sermon. And that 50-50 split in Paul is pretty consistent. The foundation is the theology, the information about what God has done and who we are because of it. This is what theologians call the indicatives, right? So the the indicative is a uh, uh, it's sort of the verb of being to be. That's that's the idea of the indicative, and and so it's it's what is true about God and what is true about you. Those are the indicatives. So here's what's true about God, about you, about the world, so on and so forth, and that includes about sin, about the Bible, about the last day, so on and so forth. And then, again, in a lot of Paul's letters, after he lays that foundation, he then moves to the imperatives. That is, now knowing what's true about God, what's true about you, here's what you do with that information. Here's how you live. Okay, so so knowing that truth now. Here's what you must do or how you must live. To put it another way, the first three chapters of Ephesians tell us what is true. The latter three tell us what should be true or ought to be true about us in light of that. And so we find here at the start of chapter four, then this first verse, Paul is in a sense, just kind of kind of go with me metaphorically here for a moment. Paul is sort of, in a sense, rebooting his letter, restarting the letter. You could say it's two letters. The first one is the doctrine letter. The second is the application letter. But they are rightly one letter because those two go together. But what I'm trying to say, trying to get you to notice, is that Paul starts chapter four almost the same way he started chapter one. Do you remember back in, in uh, chapter one, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, right? He starts by introducing himself. So that the hearers will know why they should listen to the next three chapters of the truth he has to tell them. He identifies who he is and by what authority or by whose authority he speaks. That's why we should hear him on the doctrine. But why should we hear him on the practical application? How to walk out our calling? Because he's walking worthy of his. Go back to 4 verse 1. I therefore a prisoner for the Lord, right? So, uh, if, if you like, apostle is his theological credential. Prisoner for the Lord is his practical life credential. Paul is is calling back in this in these words, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. he's, he's actually again that's another reference to something back in chapter one. Uh, Ephesians 1.18 Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you. The riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints. This, this Greek term that's translated calling has the sense of an invitation that carries with it both a privilege and a responsibility. And this is to... <laughs> To give the Holy Spirit and the Apostle their due credit, the perfect word for describing what God has given to us. It's a calling that has many privileges. That was chapters 1 to 3. And many responsibilities. That's what's coming in 4 to 6. I mean, the blessings, the privileges that we hear about in chapters 1 to 3, right? predestined, adopted, saved by grace through faith, not of yourselves, it's a gift of God. Chapters 4-6 to six will now describe the responsibilities. Therefore, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. In, in fact, Paul says he, uh, he urges them to do so, right? I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in this manner. There's a fatherly pastoral urging here. What that should tell you, at the very least, is that sometimes we need to be urged. No one, in, in terms of spiritual growth, just lazily coasts uphill. Right? Spiritually speaking, sometimes we need to be urged. Sometimes we need to be encouraged, corrected. We need each other. More on that in a moment. So Paul's already back in chapter 1. He's told them they've been called to a hope in Christ. Now he's saying walk worthy of that calling. And so for the rest of the sermon, I want you to to think about this. I I confess I had some PowerPoint stuff and forgot to upload it. Uh, So I've got the verses here, but I just want you to imagine that I have a very professional looking slide that says says the worthy walking. Kind of as, as as one phrase with a dash in the middle of it. This worthy walking is what Paul calls us to. Walk worthy of this calling. And so I want to pause just for a second with that in mind, right? Walk worthy of this calling. And say, would you, if you were, say, counseling or encouraging a fellow believer, is that the counsel you could ever hear yourself giving? Walk worthy of the calling to which you've been called. I mean, when, when I say that, I don't know about you, I... You feel the weight of that command. Like, walk worthy of the calling to which I've been called. Alright, um, sounds easy. No, not really. And there is a, I think, there is a, a Protestant reformational impulse. I don't know what to call it, but it's an impulse in, in us and I think kind of in our, in our Protestant evangelical culture that immediately wants to tag on to that one of our favorite sayings which is but you can't right okay walk in a manner worthy of the calling but you can't right obey god but you can't therefore grace love one another but you can't therefore grace be patient but you can't therefore grace and there is something real to that there is something right about that impulse To hear the command of God and to know your weakness in it. But I simply observe, as I hope you do as well, look at the page, that's not how the Apostle talks. It's really never how he talks. We like to talk that way, and I'm saying there's something right in that. I'm simply observing that Paul doesn't talk that way. Paul has the audacity to say, walk worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And if we were to whisper, but Paul you can't, I think Paul would say, well, sure you can. Were you not listening to the glories of the last three chapters? That's the God who's on your side, fitting you and equipping you for that calling. Sometimes I think the but-you-can't impulse is rooted in a kind of apathy if we're not careful. It's easy for our hearts to move from but I can't to but I won't. Or, or just kind of a, well, you know, I, I most likely never will. What's the sense of trying too hard? Which is absolutely wrong. I, I want to guard your heart and my heart from that. So while we do need frequent reminders, yes, frequent reminders of our helplessness for the sake of our humility, Right? Be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. I can't. I do think we should consider restraining the but you can't impulse from time to time in favor of imitating Paul, right? Imitate me as I imitate Christ, is what he said. And what I mean is that, that there should be times where we start with the glory of what God has done for us in Christ, and conclude with, therefore, with that God on my side and for me, I surely can. And when I fail, He'll forgive me. But I surely can. And so Paul's command here will shape the rest of the sermon this morning. This this worthy walking is going to shape the rest of the sermon. Um. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. And so this, this worthy walking has three things, at least three things I want us to observe, okay? And so if you're taking notes, these three points will guide the sermon. First is this worthy walking has a particular quality, or the word I like uh, for the sermon is attitude. It has a particular attitude about it, uh, or you might say particular virtues, but, but go with Attitude. Uh, second, it has a particular goal in mind. This worthy walking is going somewhere. It has a goal in mind. And then third, this worthy walking has a God that it serves, that it's for, right? And so more on that as we go. First, an attitude. This worthy walking has a particular attitude. And what we read is that that attitude is, is, is bound up or, or summarized, if you like, in humbleness, gentleness, patience, and love. Let's look at the text, verse two. With all humility and gentleness, so walk in this way, or uh, um, walk walk in this way, worthy, but also in this. This is what it looks like. Then it looks like humble walking, gentle walking, patient walking, bearing with one another in love walking. Okay, so. What I want to suggest to you here is that you have four elements of this attitude, right? Humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another, in love. The first two are mainly internal qualities. And I'm saying that loosely. You'll see what I mean as we go. What, what I mean by internal qualities is it's mainly uh, how you see yourself and how you're working on yourself, so to speak. The second two are mainly external, that is, how you treat others visibly. Of course these things are related and all jumbled up and tied together and the way you are internally is going to express itself externally to others, of course. I I don't want to work too hard to try to pull apart what what God has joined together. But we will begin with the first two, humility and gentleness. And I want to start there because what's really interesting about these two words, I I um, you know did did some did some digging in Greek and, and did did the fun word study stuff and What's interesting about these two words, humility, gentleness, they almost mean the same thing in Greek. But here's, I mean, they're so close that I had to work hard to really nail down a distinction. Here's what I've got humility is putting others first, gentleness is not being impressed with yourself as number one, not being impressed with yourself. So biblical humility is best exemplified by Christ and defined in Philippians 2, verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, there it is, count others as more significant than yourselves. That's humility. Humility is not self-deprecating talk which often can take shape as a way to draw attention to yourself, which is the opposite of humility. It is not endless depths of miserable self-pity, which is also a concealed form of pride because it draws attention to poor, poor, pitiful you. Humility is putting others before yourself. It is not uh, thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. I believe that's C.S. Lewis, though I think it might be a misattribution. That's humility, counting others more important than yourself, putting others before yourself, treating those around you as though they have real value and acting accordingly. Especially the ones who you struggle most to rightly value. That's the whole point of the or part of the whole point of the Good Samaritan parable, right? He valued the man who should have been hardest for him to value. And humility is very simply the conviction that other people matter and they matter a lot. That's humility. Now, gentleness, that is a really fascinating Greek word. When I started investigating that, I did not expect to find what I found. It's fascinating because. It doesn't really mean what we tend to think of when we talk about gentleness or meekness is the other word. We tend to think of gentleness as wrapping our words and our tone in lavender-scented velvet, right? <laughs> and there are times, there are times for that. But do you know what the word actually means? It means the quality of not being overly impressed by a sense of one's own self-importance. I pulled that straight out of the Greek lexicon the quality of not being overly impressed by a sense of your own self-importance. I love that definition. As I said earlier, humility and gentleness, internal condition of self-perception. Right. So my internal condition of self-perception, because of what Christ has done for me, that's the one through three chapters of theology, because of what Christ has done, therefore I must understand that I, that I value others more, for that is what Christ has done, And, I have this quality of not being overly impressed by my own self-importance, which is what Christ has done when He stepped down out of heaven to take on flesh. So, humility is putting others first and properly valuing them. Gentleness is not being impressed with yourself. The first one is getting lower than your neighbor, so to speak. The second one is getting higher over yourself. (laughs) Right? Notice the next terms were given with patience bearing with one another in love. We tend to think of faithfulness to Christ right what what makes a faithful Christian how do you, how do you identify a Christian we I, I think we, we tend to think well that's you know that's a matter of belief and, and confession when when actually the the walking out of the Christian life, the worthy walking out of the Christian life is tolerating some frequently annoying people bearing with one another in love uh, tolerating and loving loving actively loving not just tolerating but loving frequently annoying people for the rest of your life now be careful about calling them annoying since the earlier command is humility and gentleness they're probably annoying because they have to put up with you (laughs) but it's important and it, it could get its own sermon, Christians are a people who are patient, who put up with each other in love, in real authentic love. Indeed, again, um, the King James word, long-suffering, I think is even better than patience. Just as the uh, I forgot to mention earlier, the King James word for humility in, in verse 2 is lowliness. Low, uh, lowliness, L-O-W. Lowliness, which I, I, think, I think works even better than humility. Long-suffering. Again, if we believe in chapters 1-3, to three, all those realities have to drive us to humility and meekness. And in light of that, how could we not be patient with each other? How could we not bear with one another, understanding our own weaknesses, and how Christ acted in spite of them, in spite of our sin? Right? We are... Called then patience and bearing with one another. We are called to be a slow cooker people in a microwave world. We are called to be a people who are hard to trouble, feathers hard to ruffle, not easily triggered not easily made angry not easily flying off the handle and more than ready to bear with one another for oh how has Christ born with us patience is a hard thing to grow in brothers and sisters i know that a lot of times there's this kind of smarmy sort of cliche about you know don't don't pray for patience now because if you pray for patience can somebody finish it what is it Yeah, yeah, you'll have to, you'll need it. God's going to give you situations where you need it. Now, there's so much wrong with that. We'll just, real quick. Well, first of all, you're going to be in the situations anyway, providentially, right? Um, But what's cool about that prayer is that all of your doubts evaporate, right? So like that would be my counsel to someone if they say, I'm praying and I feel like I'm just talking to the wall. I feel like God isn't there. I would say, really? Okay. Then pray like this. Lord, give me patience in the most difficult parts of my life and give me timely and proper afflictions so I can learn to be thankful. You will no longer feel like you are alone in the room just talking to the wall. Okay, You, you will be troubled by a sense that God is listening. And so growth in patience, however, real authentic growth in patience does take time. So you must be patient. <laughs> it takes patience to grow in patience. If you need help here, I would say, come talk to me. Or, if you'd like uh, to do this individually, pick up a copy of a great book by a guy named David Powlison. Is, it's called Good and Angry. Uh, and it's about righteous anger and it's about learning how to grow in patience by uh, what Paulison does is he basically teaches you, help, helps you to teach your spirit how to identify uh, the... The impatience behind the impatience. How do I identify the anger behind the anger? The sin behind the sin? So, like, for example, if I am impatient while I'm sitting in my car because I'm suddenly stuck in a traffic jam, uh, let's say I'm on my way to... Actually, this did happen recently. On my way to, like, a hospital visitation, traffic slows me down, and I'm going to be late, and I start getting angry. I'm not angry because of traffic. Well, I am, but but not really i'm angry because in that moment my sense of identity is bound up in whether or not people are impressed that i arrived on time right and so you kind of have to do a little bit of a little bit of fishing as it were in your own soul and you say okay there's a reason why i'm angry and losing patience here and it's not cuz there are extra cars around me okay so what this means practically for us Means that we must walk in a manner worthy of our calling, right? So that's a matter of, I'll just combine the two parts. It's a matter of humble gentleness and a matter of patient love. People take time, growth takes time, Christian growth takes time, discipleship takes time, all of it takes time. And we, we tend to think that these things are instantaneous or overnight. But a lot of times, God is good to give you a sense of your own insufficiency before your calling. Whether it's a job or, or marriage or fatherhood or any other number of, of, of callings that God puts before you, and you're like, I don't, I don't know if I'm ready for this. I don't know if I'm fit for this. Growth takes time. Cultivation of patience takes time cultivation of meaningful fellowship takes time we're about to later in the passage we're moving into this idea of unity in the body cultivation of meaningful fellowship takes time learning to be comfortable with other people takes time bearing with one another right it takes a lot of forgiveness it takes making and remaking meaningful relationship and one of the best ways to do that if you want to write something down, then write this down. One of the best ways to do that is to weaponize your patience. Weaponize your patience. Here's what I mean. First, get your theology straight. Get your Ephesians chapter 1-3 through three straight. Remind yourself that he who began a good work in you is going to bring it to completion. That's true of you, and it's true of every other Christian. Second, remind yourself that the object of your impatience, let's say because of their absence of sanctification, is by God's own declaration, therefore, also a work in progress. Third, use your sanctified imagination to design in your head a few dreams about what God might do with that person in the next year. Next two years. Next three years. Provided you were faithful in praying for them. Sure, they're a real handful now. But if you prayed for them faithfully for a year, loved them after Christ's own example, gave them wisdom and knowledge that God's given you by encouraging them from His Word, we just call that discipleship. Let that slow cook for about a year on low simmer, and what might God do? Right? Use your weaponize your patience. Use your imagination to try to, to try to just grasp at that picture, and. It will help strengthen your patience. Right? So I said that's the that's the attitude that this worthy walking has about it. Next, this worthy walking has a goal. Join me please at verse 3. So, so you're, you're, you're walking you're, uh, in um, um, uh, humility, gentleness, patience, love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Notice the first word is eager. I think the The real weight of our calling is often most notably felt in the reality that we're not just called to do things or obey certain commands. We're actually called to feel correctly about all of it, to have proper feelings about the commands of God. This is almost insulting in a world that tells you you have no control over what you feel. You absolutely do have control over what you feel. Now, your feelings often feel out of your control. That's that's real. And it is rather easy to be controlled by your feelings. Being controlled by your feelings, that's that's just the car rolling downhill. All you have to do is put it in neutral and do nothing, and gravity will do the rest. But God calls us to put our emotions under the control of the Scriptures. He calls us to be joyful about His victory. To weep and be grieved over our own great evil and wickedness, and the great evil and wickedness in the world. I mean, starting with us, and but not limited to our own. He calls us to be eager, eager to maintain unity. The word in Greek actually carries a sense of like haste or hurry. Hurry up and be excited to maintain this unity. Now let's notice some things about this unity. First, it is spirit wrought. When Paul speaks of the unity of the spirit, he's not talking about the Spirit's unity or the unity belonging to the Spirit or even unity that is spiritual. He's saying unity given by the Spirit. In the bond of peace. What does that mean? Well, for, for pieces of wood in a table to remain unified, they have to be bonded together, right? By glue or by screws. The bonds are what hold the thing together. Paul has already told us What the peace is that bonds us together. Or rather, He's told us who it is. Remember back in chapter 2, verse 14? For He that is Christ Himself is our peace, who has made us both one, there's the unity, and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility, there's the humility, love, patience, so on. So with that in mind, hear the verse again. Eager, To maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That is, eager to maintain the unity the Spirit has given to you in Christ who is your peace and who holds your peaceful unity together in Himself. Chapters 1-3 through were about how Christ has made peace between us and God by making enemies into sons. Now Paul says, very well, sons of God, make sure you're constantly enjoying that same peace with each other. Notice the word Maintain. He's not telling them to create unity. He's telling them to preserve what's already been given to them. Right? So, peace then. Peace among the brethren. Maintaining this unity that the Spirit's given us. I think sometimes, by the way we talk, we almost expect Paul, You know that Paul could have just said at the end of chapter 3, Amen, be blessed, go home. Ended chapter 3. Because, why would you need anyone to go on to chapter 4 and tell you how to live if you really believed 1 to 3? Right? If you really had the Holy Spirit, who really needs then, you know, command or instruction or law if, if you have the Holy Spirit? And to that, apparently, Paul's answer is every single one of you sinners needs it. Peace, therefore, is something we're called to. Peace, therefore. Unity, maintaining the unity, requires work. Meaningful fellowship, that is peaceful, joyful, spirit wrought, takes work. Actually knowing people and being known takes work. Discipleship takes work. I mean, discipleship means frequent conversation and meeting together. Here, in this room, out there, in coming and going, in our homes as well. And all of that one anothering counts. It, 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 it builds us up together. It binds us together. And that's good news because Paul says we should be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. We should therefore cultivate an eagerness in our heart that says, Fantastic news! We're off to spend time with our brothers and sisters so we can know them and be known by them. Oh, I'm so excited! So why? Why do we do that? Well, so we can be helped by them. And we can do some helping ourselves. So that we can appear before God together. That we can lift up our melodies and harmonies alongside them. This is what we were made for. But it does take a lot more intentionality and maybe even work than sometimes we want to admit. Shallow fellowship can be painful. Deep fellowship. Deep culture. Deep traditions. Deep and meaningful growing together. That takes work and sometimes not a small amount of money. (laughs) But it is staggering to the point of embarrassing how much glory our Father has packed into it. Meaningful fellowship together. And so peace is designed for us, meant for us. Christ Himself has given us this peace. Therefore, maintain this unity together. And second, one more thing I want to say about peace the peace that the Lord gives, the unity of the fellowship that He he gives us together, you know what else it is? It's fun. In a world of so much backbiting, conflict, grudges, unforgiveness, irritation swept under the rug, it's miserable. By contrast, peace is fun. That is why we're eager to maintain it. It is so much fun to be at peace with each other and to cease to be afraid of each other. And that takes work. Sometimes just work of honesty. What we call, you know, it's a fancy name, conflict resolution. But just working through these things together. And so I've I've talked to you about an attitude. I've talked to you uh, next... uh, forgot my own word a goal right this this worthy walking is moving toward the goal of unity and peace together and then third this worthy walking is all because of a god and flows from him look at verse five and six one lord one faith one baptism one god and father of all who's over all through all and in all we will go a little bit over today at the end of our passage we are given an avalanche of ones right one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. And so we learn that this God is one. That's not at all at odds, by the way, with the doctrine of the Trinity. It always sort of makes me laugh when I hear, um, uh, they're like Muslims on, on YouTube, for example, who are adamantly opposed to the doctrine of the Trinity. And they'll say, you Christians need to understand that God is one. <laughs> to that I say, amen. Amen. <laughs> trinitarianism trinitarianism is not god being uh is not less than god being one but it is more what paul is doing here though in a sense he's he's taking us back to the same again he's taking us back to the same beats the same focus of chapters one through three he's doing theology again because he can't help himself his theology pushes him to application and here we see his desire to defend his application sends him back into his theology one faith, one God, one Lord, one baptism, and so on. And so he's saying that the, the grounding of all our unity, the grounding of our unity, is not, for example, our slogans about the distinction between essentials and non-essentials, important as that is. The grounding of our unity is Christ Himself and what He has said and done. And that this Christ, our Lord, has only one plan, one body, the church, and that there's one Spirit who fills His one body. Christ has one bride. He is not a polygamist. And this church that He has founded which is growing and marching on all around the world against which the gates of hell will not prevail, that body is one body. To which all God's people said, but what about denominations then? Why doesn't the one body look very one? Very quickly. This is sort of a brief aside. Denominations are a human attempt to organize Christians around one or two or three or whatever uh, uh, biblical emphases. So every Christian should say, I believe the Bible. And then if you ask them, okay, what are the sort of top 10 themes in that Bible that are the most important to the God who wrote it? you're going to get lots of different answers. So yes, we all believe the Bible, but we also all believe that the Bible itself has different points of emphasis or priority. This is basically where, how you get denominations. Denominations are, an attempt, are attempts to organize people around particular biblical emphases. So, for example, for, for Presbyterians, we tend to see the central biblical emphasis as the sovereignty of God, and then possibly a second or maybe equal with the first would be uh, God's promises, namely in His covenants. Lutherans tend to see the central emphasis as the law-gospel hermeneutic. Some passages in the Bible are law passages, some are gospel passages, and and from that flows their theology. Baptists tend to see evangelism, evangelistic preaching, and the importance of baptism post-credible profession of faith as the major emphasis. Historic Methodism, And Wesleyanism tends to see the main emphasis as faithful obedience to God as the main expression of loving God. Roman Catholicism, if we can call Roma denomination, tends to see her own seven sacraments as the major emphasis. Pentecostalism and the charismatic denominations tend to see the miracles, sign gifts, deliverance experiences, and the so-called second blessing as the major emphasis of Christianity. And non-denominationalism tends to prioritize and emphasize individuality, anti-structuralism, and freedom of expression as at least as one of the core central emphases. Here's my point. Some people see the mere existence, the mere existence of denominations as, uh, as a bad thing, an evil thing, proof that we've broken the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Now, that's because in part they're right, and that is some of what's happening. God forgive us. I do think on some level, you know, greater institutional unity would would be better for us all. But I am not anti-denominational. I don't think external institutional unity is necessary for us to have the unity that Paul is insisting we must have here. Second, I think denominations are more like a patchwork quilt or a mosaic. They're all kind of grabbing their different emphases. They're all trying to put the emphasis where they think it lands in Scripture, and I think to some extent we need each other. My Lutheran brothers have greatly helped me understand the importance of the sacraments and of liturgy. My Anglican friends have helped me learn how to pray well. I learned how to preach almost entirely from Baptists. And even Rome, for all her many faults, has taught me that God cares about beauty and, say, architecture a lot more than I do. (laughs) Third, we are... United, united, really and truly, to all true gospel-believing, gospel-preaching churches and all true believers across the world, far outside of this particular gathering, this particular denomination and tradition. Christ has made it so. And therefore, we should try to maintain happy fellowship with Orthodox Christians, Bible-believing Christians, wherever we happen to find them. In other words, our standards for fellowship should not be higher than those of our Lord Jesus. Right? Speaking of denominations, you might have noticed Paul includes baptism in there. You get one Lord, one faith, one baptism. And that maybe threw you a bit. I mean, everything else seems pretty obvious, but what is, what is baptism doing in this list? Well, when you think about it for a minute, you realize that, that if we're meant to be brought in to this spirit-given unity in the bond of peace, baptism is the door. Baptism is, is how God brings people into this body, into this service of the one Lord. It's how people come... No, don't misunderstand me. Not apart from faith, of course. But, but this is really remarkable to think about when our, you know, our uh, confessions, catechisms, denominational distinctives, they don't tie us to other traditions. They don't tie us to all the other Christians and all the other places, not all the other Christians in all the other places, for instance, uh, adhere to the Westminster Confession, right? So just as an example. But you know what does tie us to all the other Christians and all the other places? Our baptism. That's why I'm a big fan of saying, right, this is not just water. This is not just bread. This is not just wine. It's not just stuff. It is stuff that God uses To do God's stuff. Like bringing us into His family. Like strengthening our faith. Like readying our hands for service. Like binding us together in fellowship. It's not just stuff. It's stuff that God uses to do stuff. Finally, we are called to this unity by our one God and Father of all. This is the conclusion. Look at the last verse. One God and Father of all who is over all, through all, and in all. This is the perfect way to end this section, I'd say. The idea here is that we have one God holding together this one body by one spirit with one hope. We have one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father over one tiny group of Christians in Louisiana. No, that's not what he he says. Yes, our unity comes from the one God who is God and Father over all His body, over all His children and the world and all the nations, yes, but that's not his point here. When he says overall, all, through all, in all, he's not talking about the whole world. He's still talking about the church. So yes, God is Lord over all the nations, but that's not the focus here. When Paul says uh, "Overall through all, and in all, he means you, Christians. That's been the focus of this section. What this means for us, if I had to summarize this this text, verses 1 through 6, in one sentence for you this morning, it would be Unity takes work. <laughs> unity has to be on purpose. It, 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 it takes the work of stuff like patience and love and, and so on. It has to be the unity, not just for unity's sake, but unity of a confession around Christ the Lord. We must be unified on the essentials. And we will have debates about what constitutes essential and what constitutes really, really, really important stuff that goes just underneath essential. That's to be expected. But the bottom line is that unity takes real work. It takes work to... I mean, you, you get how Paul is like joining together unity and fellowship. That's huge. That means unity takes work. It takes work to show up. It takes work to come to church. It takes work to be present during the week. It takes work to come to Wednesday night. It takes work to visit each other in our homes, to check up on each other. Phone calls, text messages, just to see how we're doing. It takes work to know and be known. But do you see that what Paul is saying here is that Jesus our Lord means to manifest an awesome glory on earth by uniting a bunch of sinners together. Gathering them around His table and then sending them out to conquer the world. And God turns enemies into brothers. And when He does that, He's proving His own Gospel. When those former enemies of God take their swords, as it were, and instead of pointing them at each other, point their sharpened blades at the real and present threats to their unity. The real and present threats to their fellowship, to their patience, to their love. The glory of the Lord Jesus is put on display. When ordinary men crucify their impatience, And determine that their calling is humility. All our theology. Goes from academics. To actualities. God our Father. Father of us all. Has seen fit to teach his children. That their ordinary day to day. Getting on with each other. Is a gift and a glory that is worth fighting for. By this. They will know you are my disciples, that you love one another. So keep the gift you've been given, so that it may be obvious that there is one God and Father of us all. Indeed, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. In the name of our one Lord Jesus, amen. And so, our Father, we ask for your help as we seek To be worthy of, as we seek to walk in such a way as to be worthy of this calling. For this, we will need help. Feed us, strengthen us, energize us, make us, make our hearts more eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Again, we ask for help. Have mercy on us, O Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.